Hello, welcome to Book Chat. I'm Carl Helliker, and with us today is Lorette Treese, archivist at Bryn Mawr College and the author of numerous books we have here, but the one we'll be talking about today is Railroads of Pennsylvania. Very fascinating book. Welcome, Lorette. Thank you. Um, just uh, to begin, is your interest in Pennsylvania railroad history related to your work at Bryn Mawr College as an archivist, or, or how did you get interested in railroad history? Well, you know how librarians get interested in all kinds of things. Uh, however, um, my railroad book is a product of my other career. For about 20 years, I've been studying and writing about the history of Pennsylvania. And for a long time, I wanted to address the issue of railroads simply because they had such a huge social and economic impact on the development of our state. And just to put that in a nutshell, Railroads were literally the technological development that came along at the right place and the right time to make Pennsylvania a very wealthy state by the beginning of the 20th century. Interesting. Uh, not only is your title interesting, but the subtitle is kind of intriguing. The book, of course, is Railroads of Pennsylvania, but the subtitle is Fragments of the Past in the Keystone Landscape. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I took the word and the concept of fragments from a science fiction novel by Jack Finney called Time and Again. It's kind of a classic. And in the novel, Finney refers to fragments of the New York landscape, in other words, buildings and neighborhoods that were such wonderful artifacts of the past that they very clearly evoked uh, another time and another place. And of course, in the novel, the hero is able to so intently focus his mind on some of these fragments that he can travel through time. Now, I haven't figured out how to do that. <laughs> But what I've done in the book is to look at history through the study of artifacts. In other words, I'm looking at the Pennsylvania landscape, seeing what's there, uh, how did it get there, what was it a part of, uh, what does it mean, why is it important? Very good. Um, you had mentioned in your um, opening remarks about the trains making Pennsylvania a very wealthy state. Uh, what were some of the reasons for the development of, rail of railroads throughout the state that set us on this path? And do the railroads, the one different railroads that developed, do they share any commonalities in their development, or do they all develop for different reasons? Well, if you want to narrow it down, uh, <laughs> railroads are basically built to move stuff. People too, but mostly stuff or freight. Uh, from the 1820s, there is talk in the state, demand in the state actually, for some sort of long distance transportation system that would link Philadelphia and the emerging city of Pittsburgh. Um, now, at the time, in the 1820s, um, this is a time when railroads are new, so new that people don't try, quite trust that technology. Canals had long been the way to go. Mm -hmm. So Pennsylvania's attempt to address this need is actually with a public transportation project, a very massive and expensive project, that was called the Main Line of Public Works or State Works. It opened in the early 1830s, and it was railroad from Philadelphia to the Susquehanna River, canal to the base of the Allegheny Mountains, railroad over the mountains, and canal the rest of the way to Pittsburgh. It worked, it got the job done, but it was never very efficient. It took about four days to get freight across the state. Um, within about 10 or 15 years, Pennsylvanians are clamoring for something better, for better efficiency in the system. And also because this is a very expensive system to build and also to maintain, Pennsylvania wants to get out of the public transportation business. Mm -hmm. In 1846, a new company called the Pennsylvania Railroad Company is chartered. Um, it eventually takes over the old main line of public works, which it greatly expands and becomes within a century the standard railroad of the world. 
Um, now, the Pennsylvania Railroad is the railroad that most people associate with Pennsylvania, but there were other railroads being developed throughout the state, basically uh, private ventures, and pretty much wherever there was a product or a natural resource that needed to be moved from the place where it was being produced or harvested to um, a market. So. Um, Railroads developed throughout the state and they served all our major industries. Uh, coal mining created the need for many, many railroads in Pennsylvania, uh, but also our other industries, our short-lived oil industry, um, our lumber industry, and what is still our largest industry, which is agriculture. So uh, basically, the uh, the railroads have been in a business more, as you said, for transporting stuff, right. much more than people. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Uh, well, let's jump ahead now to uh, here we are now. And 50 years ago, at least in terms of more like of trains as public transportation, uh, what how, how have the train service and, and trains themselves have changed over the last half century? Well, 50 years ago, uh, there were a lot of different train companies. Um, 50 years ago, we were coming off of World War II. That was a boom for the railroad industry. But it was a boom in, in the stretch of decline. Um, following about World War I, uh, the railroad industry began um, a state of decline. Uh, it was facing competition in terms of cars, trucks, interstate highways, and also air transportation. Um, over the course of the later half of the 20th century, this fostered a lot of mergers in the railroad industry. Um, and then later we had a period of nationalization. Uh, we got Conrail, which was a freight service, nationwide freight service. It no longer exists. Um, its assets have since been acquired by Norfolk Southern and CSX, uh, both of which I understand are running fairly profitably. And also passenger service was nationalized in the form of Amtrak, which still exists, but I don't think has ever turned a profit since it was established. Mm -hmm. And I hope you're not going to ask me what's the future of Amtrak, because <laughs> I am just a historian. Mm -hmm. I only study the past. I don't predict the future. Well, okay. We will have to get uh, Nostradamus for that, <laughs> that one. Uh, but uh, thank you for that uh, summary there. Uh, you talk in your book about railway, ray, excuse me, railway abandonments. Uh, what problems did they cause, and actually, how were the problems addressed, and what were they? Well, a railroad abandonment, or a route abandonment, is what happens when that route is no longer running a profit. Um, the railroad that went over the Allegheny Mountains, the old Allegheny Portage Railroad that was part of that original main line of public works, was a technology where it lifted canal boats out of the water onto railroad cars. They were conducted up uh, inclines by means of a steam engine at the top of the incline. And then they moved over a rail bed to the next incline and the next steam engine. So you're kind of going up the mountains and then down the other side. Very inefficient technology. Was abandoned as soon as something better came along. Um, mergers also accounted for a lot of railroad abandonments because two, railroad, uh, two railroads would merge. They'd realize that they had redundant routes and so they'd get rid of one of them or simply stop running trains over one of them. In the 1980s, there was federal legislation passed that allowed for the concept of rail banking which uh, got rid of the problem of some of these abandoned railways by um, ripping up the uh, tracks and the ties and laying down gravel or some other medium and voila, you've got yourself a linear park with a nice trail where people can walk or ride their dirt bikes or walk their dogs or whatever it is that they want to do. But you've also got a corridor that's going to be protected and can be reconverted for the use of a real railroad if that ever becomes necessary for our economy. Um, Lorette, one of the nice features about your 
book, you discuss th uh, things other than uh, actually the trains that people might enjoy. And you talk a lot about different railroad museums throughout the state. Uh, which ones are some of your favorites, and which ones are nearby people can get to? to okay. Um, well, my husband and I, when we were researching this book, we visited many, many railroad museums, and there are railroad museums large and small throughout the state. Uh, locally, one of the best bets might be the Railroad Museum of Pennsylvania in Strasburg. They mm -hmm. have examples of rolling stock from literally every uh, railroad that operated within Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And it's a very interesting place to visit. Uh, a little further afield, if you want to take a drive up the turnpike, there is Steamtown in Scranton. And at the other end of the turnpike in Altoona, there's the Altoona Railroaders Museum. Um, another local uh, point of interest, people might want to revisit the Franklin Institute. Now, the Franklin Institute, when it was built in the 1930s, they left a big hole in the wall so they could move into that building this very, very, very large Baldwin locomotive. And then they sealed up the wall, and the train remained in Railroad Hall. Um, now, as the years went by, when the train first got there, or the locomotive first got there, it was cutting-edge technology. Now, 60 years later, it's kind of an antique. So what to do? They can't move this object. They can't deaccession it. So they did a very clever thing in the last couple of years. They literally changed the surroundings. Railroad Hall is now the train factory, where visitors are invited to imagine they are in the factory in the late 1920s when this particular locomotive is being designed and tested. And it's a very interesting concept. I thought it was very clever to, uh, to sort of redo the, the uh, museum that way. Fascinating. Uh, I, when, I, when I grew up, I always lived near the uh, line, the Reading Railroad. Uh, can you tell us a little about the Reading Railroad, uh, what routes it covered, where it began, and what happened to it? The Reading Railroad. Uh, the Reading Railroad is a real good example of a coal hauling railroad. Uh, it was built, I believe it was chartered in the 1833, mainly to move uh, coal freight uh, from the Schuylkill, Schuylkill County down river, down the Schuylkill River to uh, Philadelphia. Um, at the time that it was chartered, it was probably one of the largest and most ambitious private ventures in uh, business history of, of our state. And it was considered sort of an engineering marvel at the time that it was built. It was graded so that any locomotive could haul the same number of cars loaded with coal downhill to Philadelphia and uphill empty back to coal country. Uh, let me see, what else? Oh, oh the Reading Railroad, it, uh, they opened a very, very large coal port called Port Richmond on the shore of the Delaware River. Um, this way, once the coal got to Philadelphia, it could also be shipped out to points throughout the world. Um, the Reading Railroad ceased operation, I believe, in 1971. Um, it became part of Conrail at that time. Uh, it left a few interesting artifacts in our landscape. Among them is the um, old headquarters and terminal in downtown Philadelphia, which now is seeing new life as the Pennsylvania uh, Convention, uh, Convention Center. Um, also, within that same building, on the ground level, there is a farmer's market that has been there literally since the uh, building opened. It's called the Reading Terminal Market. Um, the railroad executives built that building on the site where there had been an open-air market, and they simply invited the uh, farmers to come inside. And the idea of a farmer's market inside a railroad terminal was so practical and so popular that uh, that farmer's market is still very much in operation today, even though the trains have, shall we say, left the building. <laughs> um, just for people who are interested in doing some trade traveling around the state, do you have any favorite 
routes or trades you'd recommend people would take? Well, if you mean tourist railroads, there's quite a number of those uh, operating with varying degrees of financial success throughout the state. Um, for scenic beauty, you might want to try the Tioga Central Railroad up in Wellsboro. Um, when my husband and I rode that, that particular tourist line, the president of the company was also trying to bring back the glory days of railroad dining, so <laughs> that, was, that was interesting as well. Um, not too far away from here is the Strasburg Railroad, which uses a steam engine. Um, in the middle of the state, there's the East Broadtop, which is interesting because it's a narrow gauge railroad. But I think if you really want to have a railroad history experience, what you need to do is to get on uh, Amtrak at 30th Street Station and literally ride to Pittsburgh. There you are following the original main line of the Pennsylvania Railroad Company, and you're going to pass a lot of history in terms of um, artifacts, buildings, mm -hmm. historic train stations, and one very important engineering feature called the Horseshoe Curve. Yeah. In Altoona. Mm -hmm. uh, very, very fascinating. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about trains and history. Who were the Molly Maguires you refer to, and, and what role did they play in Pennsylvania Railroad history? Well, the Molly Maguires were actually coal miners. They were Irish immigrants, and in the decade of the 1870s, they certainly had some legitimate complaints about their employers. Um, the thing is, they went a little bit beyond strikes and picket lines, where they actually organized a secret society and uh, they roughed up figures of authority, even murdered some mine operators and supervisors, that kind of thing. Um, Franklin Gowan was president of the Reading Railroad at the time, uh, was very upset about this because it was bad for business for the Reading Railroad. So he hired a detective, a Pinkerton detective, to infiltrate the Molly Maguires and to gather evidence upon them. Uh, then the, uh, the, the Molly Maguires, who were accused of murder, were brought to trial. Uh, Franklin Gowan then became the chief prosecutor, he was also a lawyer, became the chief prosecutor at their trial and gained a conviction and I believe 19 of the Molly Maguires were hanged in a little jailhouse in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. Uh, it's interesting if you read accounts of this trial and of the hanging in the 1870s, like newspaper accounts that were published at that time, it seems like the prevailing sentiment was, oh thank God we're rid of those thugs. But today, a lot of historians are revisiting that story, mm -hmm. and many of them with uh, much more of a pro-labor bent. So we're beginning to see the Molly Maguires kind of revitalized and their reputations restored. And a lot of questions being asked about this trial and whether they would have been convicted uh, given the um, atmosphere of today. Fascinating. Uh, before we go to break, I just thought I'd take a, a few seconds here to show some of uh, the other books Lorette was kind enough to bring that which she wrote. First, we have... Uh, Valley Forge, Making and Remaking of a National Symbol, about uh, our nearby and much beloved park. Uh, we have The Storm Gathering, which is about the family of William Penn and their impact in American history. And we have a few little uh, parts of a, a series, Trail His of History Guide of Pennsylvania, and Lorette has one, written the one on Graham Park. And another one on Hope Lodge. And one other thing. So we all pretty much know what you're doing when you're not archiving <laughs> around Bryn Mawr College. Yes, that's true. <laughs> we have the uh, 
Rosen Gardens and Chandelier. 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 Sorry. Chandelier. Chandelier. Sorry. Which is their uh, main line estate. The Rosen Garden family was uh, very, very, very prominent in Philadelphia. Uh, they ran a pharmaceutical business, which has since become, after many mergers, Merck. So this is now the um, now the public estate, public garden of mm -hmm. the last of the um, the Rosen Gardens. Uh, Lorette, we hear so much about Andrew Carnegie and uh, less about the robber baron Jade Gould. Jay Gould, but they both played important roles in Pennsylvania Railroad history. Uh, what were those roles? Well, they were both men of fairly humble origins who kind of made good in the railroad industry. Uh, Jay Gould uh, was associated for a while with the New York and Erie Railroad. Of course, he is more firmly <laughs> associated with the Union Pacific Railroad, and also his attempts to uh, forge a transcontinental railroad by buying up smaller railroads. Some of them uh, eventually ran through Pennsylvania. Um, Andrew Carnegie was the man of steel from Pittsburgh, and not too many people know that he got his first business experience working for the Pennsylvania Railroad for about 12 years. Um, both these men, of course, went on to become very, very wealthy. It's interesting in how historians view them today. Uh, Andrew Carnegie is kind of the Horatio Alger success story. He's the young man who becomes wealthy and then becomes a, a, a philanthropist and does a lot of good. Jay Gould, on the other hand, has been depicted as the quintessential robber baron, somebody who got rich on the backs of other people. Uh, although I understand that business historians are now taking another look at Jay Gould's reputation and rehabilitating him to some extent as well. well just you stay around uh, long enough, people will finally speak well of you, I guess. Um, you call uh, Scranton the past and future railroad town. Why is that? Well, Scranton was the hub for the DL&W, or the Delaware, Lackawanna, and Western Railroad, which is commonly just called the Lackawanna Railroad. Um, and as a matter of fact, their passenger terminal, which was a very elegant building, is still sitting in downtown Scranton, and it's now seeing new life as a Radisson Hotel. Now, Scranton, of course, well, if you go to that hotel, let me put it that way, you may from time to time see a park ranger in the lobby giving tours, uh, which would have originated at nearby Steamtown. So we have um, a new life of railroads being interpreted at Steamtown. Um, I also understand from what I've been reading in the newspapers from that area that the freight business is picking up in this area. There's also a local entity called the Lackawanna County Railroad Authority, which is looking into bringing passenger service from Scranton to either Newark or New York, which would be a huge impact for that mm -hmm. uh, for that region. It would not only enable people from Scranton to live in well live in Scranton and commute to New York, but might also bring New Yorkers for uh, a weekend in the Poconos. When I wrote the book, um, the projected date for this passenger service was between 2003 and 2006. I understand that it is currently 2006 to 2007, but it's still very much on the books. Fascinating. And uh, just goes to show you how even in this uh, day and age, railroads can really lead to a resurgence in the economy of a whole area that they serve. Who was Phoebe Snow? Phoebe Snow was also associated with the Lackawanna Railroad. Uh, she was not a real person. She was an advertising icon, kind of like Aunt Jemima or Betty Crocker. Uh, the railroad hired a model who wore a white dress and a great big white hat, and they posed her in and around trains, getting on the train and getting off the train. Uh, based upon uh, those photographs, an artist put together some very Art Nouveau mm -hmm. advertising placards, which encouraged people to take the Lackawanna Railroad from New York to Buffalo. 
Um, the white dress was to emphasize the fact that the Lackawanna Railroad burned anthracite coal, which was very clean. And Phoebe Snow always spoke in verse, and the verses are very popular. People society and, and what services does it offer? Well, that is an organization dedicated toward the preservation of railroad history. Got its start in the 1930s, a time when railroads were kind of beginning a decline in the industry. But people were also intent upon preserving railroad heritage, which is what the organization still does today. It's a worldwide organization. There are many chapters throughout the United States, many even in uh, the Philadelphia area. Um, what the chapters do kind of depends upon the interest of the various members. They may literally preserve railroad heritage in terms of refurbishing rolling stock or buildings like train stations or towers, that sort of thing. Um, they may host uh, dinners with speakers or um, organize rail excursions. It kind of depends on what the members are interested in. Personally, I'm a member of the Philadelphia chapter, mm -hmm. but also in this area we have a Delaware Valley chapter and a Lehigh Valley chapter. And I think if your viewers are interested in joining, the best thing to do would to be to find the uh, website of the organization. I think it's uh, National Railway Historical Society, nrhs.com. And there they will find a listing of all the chapters and even information if they want to start their own chapter. Fascinating. Uh, w one part that gets fairly dramatic in your book, which you know is not all that dramatic, but it is very informative and well-written, is the talking about uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad and what happened at the Johnstown flood in 1889. What, what happened there in, in Johnstown, and what, how was the railroad involved in that? Well, Johnstown flood, of course, was a terrible disaster for, for the history of Pennsylvania. Uh, this was a flood in which 2,200 people died. That's a lot of people. Um, as far as the Pennsylvania Railroad was concerned, they lost miles of track, they lost two major bridges, uh, I believe over 500 railroad cars and uh, over 30 locomotives. So this was a great big economic hit for the Pennsylvania Railroad. Uh, what happened was that a dam burst. The dam had been built to regulate the canal that used to run through Johnstown that was part of that main line of public works. When it was abandoned, it was uh, the, the uh, reservoir saw new life as the central attraction for the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, to which a great many wealthy Pittsburghers belonged, including railroad executives. Uh, the dam burst in a rainstorm. This mountain of water came rushing toward the town of Johnstown. Uh, there was one Pennsylvania Railroad engineer, his name was John Hess, who happened to be in an engine not very far from Connemaw. And when he heard this horrendous crashing sound of this water coming down uh, upon him, he put on steam and tied down his whistle so that his engine literally ran screeching all the way into East Connemaw, where the rail yards were. Uh, this warned a lot of people just in time to get out of the way. Um, also, a number of people who had been cooling their heels waiting for their trains to leave uh, the, the station there were also warned and able to jump out of the train and reach higher ground. So John Hess is kind of a, hit, a hero uh, in that story. But so is Robert Pitcairn, who was the western superintendent of the Pennsylvania Railroad at the time. After the flood was over, he organized a lot of relief work um, for the victims of the Johnstown flood. Fascinating. A fascinating story and a fascinating book. Lorette Therese, thank you so much for joining us today on Book Chat. Lorette is the author of Railroads of Pennsylvania, and I'm Carl Helliker, and we'll see you soon.